Uh, we're going to have uh, a conversation here at the front um, for about 45 minutes, uh, I guess, uh, and, then, and then we'll open to the floor for questions. And then afterwards, there is an opportunity to um, buy copies of the play that's being discussed at the back. It's just 9 99 uh, so we don't expect to see any copies left on the table uh, by the time you leave. So um, I'm going to take a seat now and, um, uh, and hand over to our two... Most welcome guest, Jonathan Moore, actor, writer and director, who is going to be talking about his play Inigo with the journalist, broadcaster and author Mark Lawson. Welcome. Thank you very much, um, Father. I almost wasn't... It's slightly late, this, which is... It's not really my fault, but one of those... We're going to talk about drama in a moment. <laughs> and one of those things happened that you wouldn't dare do in a drama. Um, I arrived on the campus and someone standing there looked pleased and said, Oh! I think I know where you're going. Come with me. Um, and so I went with them, and they said, you are here for the lecture. And I said, well, I don't, wouldn't call it a lecture, but yeah, I am, actually. And on the way there, um, I said, um, is John here? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, John's here. He's in, the, um, he's in the green room. Anyway, I ended up on a totally different part of campus. Um, John McDonnell, that you can't leave at this point, by the way. John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor, is giving a lecture somewhere else. And they thought I'd come for that, but I hadn't. I'd come to interview um, Jonathan Moore. So I'm now back in the right um, part of the LSE campus. It's interesting, one of the things you wouldn't dare do in a drama is them both being called John, which led to one of the um, misunderstandings. Yeah, it would be a problem. You had a different name, we just sorted it out long ago. That's right, exactly. But that does actually, it actually didn't happen to Mark. It's, um, it's the speech from Pinter's posthumous play. That he, it sounds like exactly something that Harold Pinter will write. You're John, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> Coming in here. Is John here? Yeah, he's here. Yeah. He's in the green room. Yeah, yeah. Um, so two things we have to establish. The play Inigo is about, um, as we know, St. Ignatius of Loyola, um, and it's written by Jonathan Moore. It has an introduction by me. Um, that means he gets much more of the 999 than I do. Um, but I don't get any of it, so that's fine. It all goes um, to him. So the two things to establish are who, who Jonathan Moore is and um, who uh, Inigo is, and then we'll talk about that for a bit. Um, we'll talk about religious drama in general and drama, and then we'll open it up to you. So to establish who you are, because um, actually, uh, Father, who uh, introduced us, missed off one thing. You're a librettist as well as an actor, writer, director. So let's. Um, so through those things, you started. I, I mean, I saw plays by you when you were quite young, and I was quite young. Yeah. Um, but was that the first thing, writing or acting? Um, acting, really, was the first thing. Um, but they, they always went hand in hand. In fact, weirdly enough, no. Writing was the first thing. So I wrote this play when I was 11. I was one of these really annoying kids. And, um, but yeah, I wrote this play when I was 11 and, and didn't really know why I was writing it. I, I didn't even know what a play was, particularly. And then it was about... Uh, a play competition uh, set in ancient Greece. <laughs> and uh, I had no idea. I mean, Greece was somewhere you went on your holidays. You know, that was like, that was uh, what Greece was. And um, so they were poems, dramatic <laughs> poems, dramatic poems written by writers who would then get a prize at the end of it. Um, so I took it to our teacher. And were they people like Sophocles? And, because they no, did no, actually these were just made-up people. Right, okay. these were just like, I didn't even know about Greek drama. Mm. I just wrote this thing. And um, I, I took, and years later, this guy who'd done classics uh, at Oxford, uh, an actor in my company, and 
And he said, well, tell me some of the names then of the characters. And I told him, he said, well, they're ancient Greek names. I had this and that. So, yeah, I wrote the first, funnily enough, I wrote the first play uh, before I even thought of, you know, that, that you, know, you could possibly be an actor or it was, a, a, you know, like anything that anyone from my background could, could kind of reasonably aspire towards. Um, but yeah, so uh, and then and then gradually they kind of they kind of went together, yeah. And the the, the treatment was um, oh. an early play, and also if anyone who came here on the tube, one of my favourite titles of yours, which um, it's still there, isn't it, on the tube? It, it, they it's, changed uh, it slightly. slightly but yeah. The original um, thing they've said on tubes was obstruct the doors, cause delay, and be dangerous, right? And it was a kind of punky thing that pe- pe- local because wags on the tube to be clear it says don't, but you took out the don't for the your play. Yeah. Obstruct- yeah, yeah, obstructing the doors Wars. causes delay and, and can, can be, be dangerous. dangerous. So uh, people would just write obstruct the doors, cause delay, <laughs> and be dangerous, which I thought was quite interesting, as you do when you're in your early twenties about stuff like that. And so I thought it would be so much so that I thought I'd write an entire play with that as a title. And then much later, I found out that you had actually come to see it. Yeah. Probably one of the 50 people in London that had actually been to see it. So that was kind of incredible. And then treatment, I remember. And then um, you did various... You were in... Um, you acted with Diana Rigg, didn't you? On yeah, TV? I did uh, Bleak House uh, with Diana Rigg uh, in the sort of mid-80s. I played Mr. Guppy, the lawyer's clerk, in that. And that was, that was an amazing experience. A little flirtation with the mainstream, which was nice. Yeah, it was good. She was great, and uh, it was a nice, really good company. And you know, yeah. And you normally wear a hat indoors. Anyone who's seen Waiting for Godot, where um, when they take the hat off, the character stops to- stops talking. That's what happens. Here. Actually got no, I've actually got no head underneath this. It's just this kind of skull. So we'll keep the clouds. hat on. Yeah. yeah. Kind of skull, a brain with clouds, which is a great title for a play. And, it is. And more, more recently, before we get to Inigo, um, lots of um, opera. Lots of opera. I, start, I don't know who I'm supposed to be. I, 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 yeah. no, um, you sort of and, you um, try and encompass us all in a sort of curve. Have you done this before? Yeah. He's done this before. It's extraordinary. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> this is a play. Um, what was the question? Opera. opera. Oh, yeah. Um, I had Mark a sh- Anthony Turnage. That's right. I had a show on at the Donmar, and this very famous opera composer called Hans Werner Henze came to see it, and um, he was the most famous living opera composer at the time, and I'd never heard of him, which gives you an idea of how little I knew, or we still do, actually, about opera. And so I was summoned to meet him, and I'd said to the composer called Steve Martland, who's now no longer with us, uh, I said, I'm going to meet Hans Werner Henze. And he said, I said, my God, you're meeting God, you know. It was like the playwright's equivalent of meeting Arthur Miller or something. Um, so, you know, I went to meet this guy, and, and he said to me, you know, I like your work very much. Did you want to direct opera? And I said, no. And he said, why? And I said, because I think it's elitist, it's boring, it's irrelevant, it's got nothing to say to people I know or where I come from, it, it actually, I just, that sound, I just can't stand it. I, no offence. Yeah. Um, him being an opera composer, that's kind of what he did. Um, but you say that thing in your mid-twenties, don't you? And so anyway, I said that to him, he said, that I agree with everything you have said, this is why you should be directing opera. And he said, well, listen, when you go and meet this young composer, and I went to meet uh, this bloke called Mark, who'd never written anything more than seven minutes long before. 
So I went to meet him, expecting to meet this real geeky little guy, you know, sort of like, I'm a composer. And I went to meet him, and it was a bit like that, actually. But I tried to get out of it. I tried to talk myself out of the gig because, you know, it's the, the first Munich Biennale, you know. And I didn't want to wreck their festival because they seemed like quite nice people. So <laughs> I went to meet Mark and I said, listen, I'm, I'm actually not really, this opera's just not something I have on in the house. You know, I might listen to some Beethoven and some Bach or something, but I'm mainly listening to Killing Joke, The Clash, uh, Funkadelic, uh, you know, George Clinton, uh, Miles Davis. Um, it was vinyl in those days. And he said, well, look, he opened his record collection and said, this is exactly what I'm listening to. I don't want to do an opera either. <laughs> but when you're asked by Hans Werner Hansen to write an opera, you, you know, it's an offer you can't refuse. So anyway, we immediately went down the pub and got incredibly drunk. And at the end of it, I just thought, actually, he seems like a really great guy. And I, I knew enough <laughs> about, uh, you know, success scandals in the opera world and uh, in the orchestral world, like Ride of Spring by Stravinsky and, I kind of had this romantic idea there'd be a riot in the opera house, you know. I thought this would be really exciting, you know. Great, the conductor gets punched in the face or something. I don't know. And um, and so, unfortunately, it was really successful. And there was like and this was Greek, was it? No, Greek. Yeah, yeah. a thing called Which Greek, is based on a Stephen Burkhoff play. Yeah. yeah. Um, we just we were young enough again to like the idea of opera singers, you know, really screaming filthy language. Um, over the orchestra. Now, that kind of thing, still amusing, but not as amusing <coughs> as it probably was. But yeah, so um, this opera did, did really, really well, and uh, it, was, it was first time lucky, really, working on that opera, because it's still being performed all around the world now, and uh, we just kind of made it up as we went along. It was the confidence of ignorance, really. Um, and I'd just deliver whole bunches of the speech, and then Mark would just notate what I was saying and get the rhythms from, from that and then I would I would just kind of um, edit it and change the text and make it more uh, make it work uh, better uh, and so that's, that's, that was the first opera really and then as I say unfortunately there wasn't a riot in the opera house and I just get, got offered lots of new opera you know I did lot opera at La Fenice and Scottish Opera Opera North London Coliseum uh, Covent Garden, Royal Opera House. So it's a bit of a siren song, though, opera, because it really does... Uh, you know, I've always thought of myself as a theatre person. I've always, I love music, it's very important to me. But I've always thought of myself as a theatre person, working and directing plays and TV and stuff like that. And so opera, for me, was um, pretty exotic. It still is, really. Um, but it was it was a very interesting part of my life. But I'm I'm kind of glad to be back with actors and you know those kind of people again. I love singers and I love that world in many ways. But there's a lot that I don't like about it. And you were away from uh, theatre for quite a long time. Then you came back with Inigo, which is the um, uh, book that the play and the book that we're discussing. And uh, it's one of those plays where the title to lots of people won't automatically say. Um, uh, what it is, because it's St. Ignatius of Loyola, as he became. But one of the things the play is doing is to... Uh, you deliberately didn't call it St. Ignatius of Loyola because it's about him before. It, yeah. It's about... Well, and not just before, but after. It's about the inner him, as it were. Absolutely. It's like when you become beatified, it would be St. Marcus Loisonius or something like that, you know. Um, Probably low risk. <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, yeah, me too. Join the club, you know. Um, although I'll still be quite disappointed if it doesn't. Happen. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, Inigo was the the, the 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 baptism name actually of Ignatius of Loyola, and it's a very uh, Inigo. It's a very um, Basque name, and there are derivations of that word like Inaki and names like this, and you find a lot of them still, you know, playing for uh, the great Basque side, you know, mm. uh, Atletico Bilbao, every other player is called Inigo or Iñaki or something like this. Um, and for me, it just humanized him a bit more. Ignatius of Loyola, this monolithic kind of uh, character that, that, that he kind of became and kind of played, actually, and it was kind of put on to him to be this sort of person. Um, this kind of, uh, you know, the order that he co-founded um, was that is actually obviously synonymous, and them as a group uh, synonymous with the kind of intellectual achievement, and of course that's right in, in some ways. But this well, is for, for people in the room who don't know, because I, I had the luck to be, although I didn't go to Jesuit school, there were a couple of Jesuits there who were sort of on attachment, and they are, for people who don't know, the, the Jesuits are the intellectual SAS of the um, Catholic Church, aren't mm. they? They're the very, very slightly, slightly dodgy <laughs> connotations, but yeah. No, 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 but they are. I mean, in the, they're, very, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're very, very bright. And, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, astonishingly so. Mm. And, and very, and wonderfully um, perverse in a way. Not, not in the dodgy connotations, but, but sort of uh, very interested in contra positions. Because mm. uh, it's part of, it's, um, you know, with good, good Jewish friends as well, there's that idea. It's very much part of the culture, that idea of, Putting the other idea, looking from different views, taking different p- opinions, and and that's very much a part of uh, Ignatian spirituality. Actually, that the whole pro contra exercise. Well, just to interrupt because I remember that happening at school. That one of the um, other the priests who was not a Jesuit said to the Jesuit, um, "You're taking the risk that none of these boys will believe in God at the end of you um, <laughs> teaching him." And he said, "Well, that's the risk I have to take because." Um, but it was exactly that, that yeah. every position was challenged. Yeah. And, and you don't often get that. No, you don't. And, and the, the irony is that for all the intellectual uh, tradition and, and reputation, this is a man who, who w- would cry at the drop of a hat. This is a man who was all about emotion, was all about feelings. And in his letters he says things like, may, may we feel the will of God, or... You know, at mass sometimes he'd have to turn his back on people because he'd just be weeping with, with joy or be moved by something. Or He basically, weirdly enough, I just happened to know about four or five, pretty much. You probably know millions, but in quite a close way, it's kind of artistic geniuses, actually. There are about four of them, pretty much. And they're all slightly, it sounds like such a cliche, but they are all slightly dinged. You know, they're slightly uh, working on a different kind of rhythm in some ways, and um, Ignatius, for me, I recognised this person. I thought, this is this is this is an artistic genius. This is more like a composer or a writer or those kinds of people I've known. You know, just just the way he talked, the way he was, the way he comported himself. Um, uh, and in his case, particularly, it was all about emotion. It was all about how you feel about things, and that's actually the central core of Ignatian spirituality. It's to do with feelings and emotion. And um, 
and that's that was very interesting to me. Um, the other thing that fascinated me when the play first went on, because um, I knew that uh, John had written the play and I'd read it, and um, I knew it was coming on in London. And one day he said to me, um, I'm just going to go and talk to the publicity people about how we're going to promote this play. And I was watching TV um, early one evening, and they said the first Jesuit Pope. And I thought, well, I've seen a lot of clever... Um, Promotional um, <laughs> moves, um, play, but that is the. Um, but that, I mean, I have to hand it to you. I mean, that is the. I won't say take my hat off, but of course you never do. But they were good, um, they were it, good PR people. It was really good. I mean, it was it was awesome. Really and, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But that has a. Very I mean, well connected. Yeah, I mean, clearly that has helped the play because. Um, but one of the interesting things about this is, although I think um, Inigo Ignatius Loyola would have a very interesting conversation with Pope Francis, he'd be quite surprised that he was Pope. That's one of the interesting things, isn't it? He'd be surprised for the simple reason that Ignatius laid down very early on that none of them should become, you know, monsignors, let alone bishops or cardinals. And Pope, it would just have been, it was considered so, uh, for political and theological reasons, the political reason being that they didn't want to be tainted. This is a word that comes up a lot in their contemporary letters, tainted to remain tainted, untainted, and radical. Um, and they felt, they saw so much corruption in Rome when Ignatius first went there. He was really appalled by it, and he thought it was wrong to uh, buy your position of, of power in the church, and he thought it was wrong that you should uh, be able to uh, use, use, use wealth and all the rest of it and politicking to, to forward your kind of secular career. He thought that was appalling. He also thought that, um, in a possibly more nuanced way, he felt that that if you did attain high office, you were automatically uh, going to be much more tempted. Uh, and I was sort of fascinated because he understood the, he understood that power is very often power compromising, and, yeah, yeah, and compromises people exactly. And I think that's why he was um, <laughs> very very wary of it. And, and said, look, we're not, we're not going to have hardly any rules or regulations. But what we are going to do is make damn sure we're not going to be, we're not going to attain to any high office whatsoever. There's this kind of wonderful, uh, probably came in round about with Walsingham, especially the histories of the Jesuits in England. I mean, gunpowder plot, those of you who know about all that kind of stuff, it was actually meat and drink to a kind of Walsingham-esque propagandist position. Um, and still in the minds of the English, there's this folkloric idea of these Jesuits, you know, these kind of people causing all sorts of trouble, which is true in one way, the trouble bit. Um, but the, 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 um, but some of them extremely brave people. I mean, they were going round uh, well, yeah. England saying mass, converting people, Absolutely. hearing confession That's at part. a time when they were risking death to do so. That's very much part of the charism of, of the founder, that kind of, that kind of, some people would say reckless, I would say heroic, uh, bravery. There's a kind of idea, of course, that, that they were empire builders, that basically what Ignatius and his followers want, these kind of evil bug people wanted, was that they wanted to basically take over the world. They wanted to kind of have temporal power. That's kind of what they were interested in. Um, actually, what they were interested in was, as a group of proto-hippies, wanted to go to Jerusalem and be forgotten by, by society. They, that is all they wanted to do. That's all Ignatius wanted to do. So in his first trip, he went there. This almost Pythonesquely difficult journey that he did barefoot, uh, you know, walk, walking all the way, shipwrecks, you know, being tortured, all this kind of stuff. So he went there, 
and he was sent back by the Franciscans, which I'm sure there's a bit of a laugh in there somewhere, but the Franciscan um, uh, provincial in Jerusalem, an abbot of the monastery actually, said, if you don't go back, uh, we will have you excommunicated, because he was saying, there's no way, I've just got here, what are you talking about, I can't go back, ridiculous. Um, so, but he did, he did go back, and what actually happened was they, uh, they then got together again, and he met these people, uh, Francisco Javier, who became St. Francis Saviour, uh, uh, Père Favre, um, those early followers, and that's all they wanted to do. They wanted to go and live in absolute obscurity, kind of working for the poor and the dispossessed in Jerusalem. That was their idea. And this is crucial, just to interrupt, but the, um, that if we dare say it in a faith centre, Pope Francis, one of the interesting things, is a sort, whether he's, he's a kind of hippie pope in a way, but he's very consciously a Jesuit pope. It's very The whole thing of refusing to move, for people who don't know that, he's refused to move into the papal apartments. Yeah. He still um, he has this little Fiat instead of the uh, Pope mobile. When he was in Buenos Aires, yeah, got rid of the limo. In Buenos Aires, he travelled on the bus. Yeah. That is that is specifically Jesuit. It, it very much is. And Mark was saying, you know, I wrote this play, and we got the PR people to make him Pope just to sort of promote the play. It was actually I wrote this play when Benedict was uh, the Pope, and um, wow, what an inspiration he was. Um, and I was kind of a bit angry, you know, with the church. Well, again, a contra-inspiration, Pope Benedict. Well, it, it's, it's just so depressing, I found. But, you know, what do I know? It was just my take on it. And uh, I'm sure he was a much more complex individual than I really gave him credit for at the time, perhaps, you know, almost certainly. But I just felt it was a bit reactionary. It was kind of right-wing. It was conservative. It was, you know, all of those things. And so I wrote this play about Ignatius, yeah. who goes yeah. to Rome. Uh, he, so what they did was, he said, he made a bargain with God. He said, look, all right, if we can't go to Jerusalem, God knows why you're not letting us go there. But if we can't go there, we'll go to Rome instead and we'll reform it. We'll go there and we'll take on the establishment because that's going to be easy. <laughs> so they all kind of uh, went down there. And again, Pythonesque uh, her- heroism. They walked across the Alps barefoot, pretty much. And, and they kind of got there, and uh, they were immediately met with not warm welcome, and my goodness, isn't it wonderful that you've opened up a, refu- a refuge for the homeless and the hungry and the starving and kids dying in the street? Isn't it wonderful that you give up your beds to lepers? Isn't it great that you, uh, that you get two hours sleep a night because you're doing all this work uh, you know, to bring about social justice and, and change things and... Strangely enough, that made people feel slightly um, threatened by this. And um, they became very, very unpopular very, very quickly. So they were being attacked by the Reformationists, but they were also being attacked really quite virulently by within the Catholic Church. So you've got this guy going to Rome to reform Rome, and then 400 years later, some weird bloke in a hat writes a play (laughs) about this person uh, who made exactly the same journey. So I see, I see Francis as a kind of, uh, this is all completely, you know, well, serendipitous or synchronicitous, however you want to look at it. Because I'd written four drafts of the play when Benedict was the Pope. And then, so for <coughs> us, the idea, if you've got any knowledge of the history of, uh, of the Jesuits, when, when they become cardinals or bishops or whatever, it's only because there's no one else who can do the gig. It's not like they're out looking for it. It's like, you know, 400 miles, there's no one else. All right, we'll do it then, kind of thing. 
That's basically how it works. So the idea that you'd have a Jesuit pope was just extraordinary. Although, you see, one thing that I think is quite dramatic is that... But he also, yeah. just, he also like Ignatius, is, is going to Rome yeah. as, as an Ignatian reformer. And the way he kind of took on the, the, the cardinals at this normally rather anodyne sort of Boxing Day kind of talk, and it's normally just a glass of sherry and aren't we all marvellous... He decided to really round on them and use fantastic words like, you know, psychological or, or, or spiritual um, Alzheimer's. You're all, he said, I want to see you smiling, you guys. I want to see you happy. I want to see, you, you know, you're like a the bunch of... The corruption of, of gossip. As yeah, well, the man. corruption of gossip. And you're all, you're all Christians who behave as if it's Lent all the time. <laughs> That's what he said to them. Yeah. And you could see them thinking, no, this is not possible. Why is he talking like this to us? You know, and he really, really went for them. And I thought this is exactly what Ignatius did when he went to Rome 400 years earlier. So it's just kind of really interesting how things like that happen. And now I'll stop on that one. No, you no, no. Ask me. no, I did, I did. But you see, Benedict, I think Benedict and Francis is itself an interesting possible play in that Benedict, who was much, uh, well, I mean, hated by a lot of liberals in the Catholic Church, historically will have been seen to have done a heroic and interesting thing in retiring. And even more so, I think, but here's some high-grade Vatican gossip, perhaps, who knows. Um, a book by an Italian Vatican journalist um, claims, and they're never supposed to say what happens in the conclave where they vote for Pope, but things leak out. He claims that uh, Pope Francis, as he now is, um, but, 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 Bergoglio. Bergoglio, very good, Bergoglio. He, um, the opera, yeah. Yeah, he finished Bergoglio. second. He finished second the time that uh, Ratzinger became Benedict XVI. And then it's further claimed that he stepped, um, uh, he stepped, he actually, he withdrew in order to let Ratzinger become Pope. And if that's true, then I think it's psychologically fascinating. It is. Because Ratzinger must have known there was a reasonable right. chance that he would be succeeded by a Jesuit liberal. Yeah. And he allowed it to happen, which is interesting psychologically and dramatically, I think. It is, and, and, and maybe, maybe that's the, the follow-up play. Mm. But I, I think what's interesting also is that the, if anyone... I mean, it's like when I, first <laughs> when I first started researching this play, obviously it took something like two years, over a year to research it and to sit in Heathrop Library and all sorts of libraries and letters and getting things translated and finding secret documents in the reading room of the British Museum, which is extraordinary, the censura... Um, by Melchior Cano, the Dominican Inquisitor, who hated the Jesuits. I mean, just, just uh, almost in a visceral way, almost in a kind of, you know, Inspector Clouseau, is that bloke, the Herbert Lom. Yeah. I hate him, I hate him. <laughs> it's kind of the reaction. <laughs> I think just people either really loved them or really hated them. Um, um, what was I saying about that before that? The, the, um, oh, I forgot what I was saying. What were we saying? Don't worry. We were talking yeah, about, uh, about Benedict and Francis. Yeah. Uh, anyone goes, remember what I said? <laughs> he goes to Rome. Look, we'll find... We'll, we'll come back to We'll it. get back to it. We'll come back to it. One of the things, other things that fascinate about your play and about um, Ignatius Inigo is that I, last year I had, as many people in this room may have had, I had a bit of a dip, depression, anxiety, that kind of stuff. And the stuff that um, I was helped a lot by a doctor, and one of them was... Um, well, two things were recommended to me. One was by a Catholic friend, which was the, um, the Ignatian uh, discipline the, that he, which we'll talk about in a moment. And another one was mind, mindfulness. And I, having tried both, I was amazed by how similar they are and also having hung around as a 
critic and a writer, um, you've done it as an actor and director, rehearsal rooms, how close the Ignatian exercises are, spiritual exercises, um, are to acting exercises. And there's a definite line from um, acting exercises, uh, mindfulness, Ignatian, spiritual exercises. It absolutely is. I know we don't have five hours to talk about this, but but what I would say is that um, anyone who's familiar with... uh, there was a Russian uh, uh, dramatic theorist, sorry for everyone who knows this, apologies for that, but uh, Stanislavski. And there's, there's one of Stanislavski's exercises is a thing called sense memory. When you go back to a happy moment and you remember how that felt, crucially, and then you come back to the text and you apply those feelings of happiness to the scene. Equally, you know, if you're sad, you look back on sad memories, elated, look back on elated memories, and so on and so forth. That's called sense memory. In the Ignatian spiritual exercises, there's something very, very similar to that. It's about how you felt. And in fact, you do it every day. It's called the examen. Examination of consciousness is actually known as pretty much now. Um, and you just go through your feelings. It's like, it's like a note taking your feelings of that day and how things happen. It's very, very similar to how an actor prepares. It's very, very similar to how most, uh, or certainly most contemporary actors would be aware of that. When I did my first retreat down at St. Vino's in, in Wales, I, I'd been out clubbing the night before, and I just thought, oh, God, you know. And I was around at my mum's house, and this gives you the demographic. It was the universe, right? It wasn't the Catholic Herald or the tablet. The universe, you know. And there I was, just kind of really hung over, and it said, are you sick of you know, materialistic Christmases? I thought, I really am, actually. I need to feed my soul with something. I, I, you know, I... I, I oh. And this picture of this beautiful place and the Manly Hopkins was another thing. So I love Manly Hopkins, wrote some of the most amazing poetry. You know, he, he, he wrote in this place when he was based at St. Binos' Jesuit house. I've never really, I kind of heard of the Jesuits, but only in terms of literature. And Dostoevsky said they were all a bunch of bastards and you know, things like that. So I kind of went down there on the train and um, I, I, I started doing these things called imaginative contemplations, right? which, of course, goes back to the 4th and 3rd century, but, but Ignatius um, turned it into a kind of methodology, a spiritual methodology, which is still very helpful to people to this day. Anyway, so I was doing these things where you basically put yourself in the, in the Bible passage, you know, okay, all right, so you do it and you have a spiritual director. I was also told that it was a silent retreat after I'd got there. I think if they told me before, there's no way. I would have got my Irish granddad said, yeah, he's inoculated with the gramophone needle, right? I quite like talking, <laughs> quite like that sort of thing. And uh, this, they said, no, no, it is silent. You do have to be silent all the time. Apart from half an hour when you talk to your spiritual director, and then, of course, it's all, you know, it all kind of comes out. Um, but what you do, essentially, is you put you imagine that you're in the Bible story. That's it. And uh, I was having... I loved it so much. I was convinced I was doing it wrong. I just thought, this can't be right. I, this is enjoyable. <laughs> you know, because prayers were just, you know, uh, petitionary prayers that you said to, you know, him up there somewhere, or whatever he was, because it certainly wasn't a she... You know, it was always a he. Um, and so you pray to him. 
and see what happened. And then, of course, what you're doing is you're bringing all sorts of your own super, super ego id kind of stuff and you're projecting it onto that rather than actually coming from a, a deeper place. So I, I said to my spiritual director, I must be doing this wrong. I, I, I'm having too much fun. This is just too, this is wonderful. And she said, no, you're, you're really obviously taking to it like a duck to water. And I find that most artistic people really do. I was going to say, but you immediately uh, saw the connection with immediately acting the and connection. rehearsing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. As soon as you're in there, uh, you, you, you begin to see that it's about using your, 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 your effective emotions, is how Ignatius would talk about it. And you mentioned, which is again appropriate, you having been clubbing the night before you discovered all this. Um, and Ignatius would be very tolerant of that because one of the fascinating things. Yeah, he was. One of the fascinating things about your play <laughs> is that, uh, which most people associate with Paul, the Pauline conversion, but there was a Pauline aspect to Ignatius because he heard. Um, he he's certainly very angry. He may have he may have killed even me. Yeah, they're, think? They're, yeah. well, I I've actually taken that out of the play. Other what you said, you heard that Spanish academic yeah. say he didn't kill anyone. Yeah, well, oh, I can't be. But there was certainly um, a legend, there as they say in westerns, that he had killed a man. He was a street fighting man. He 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 was one of these people that if anybody looked at him funnily or in a strange way, he would absolutely call them out on it. He would absolutely say, "Who are you looking at? Why are you looking at me with disrespectfully?" And he was an expert swordsman, so he, 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 um, I went to the town square in Aspazia, in, uh, where he came from, and uh, again, I did a kind of imaginative contemplation and just imagined that it was taking place at this great big Mardi Gras street brawl, is what it's referred to, and the, the extant court records uh, of what the judge, the corregidor, said to him, that's all verbatim pretty much in the play. And um, he, he really, I mean, he really was something else. He was a gambler. He was a street fighter. He was a, a, a terrible womanizer. He was um, a, a kind of obsessive, a kind of, a kind of mad for pleasure, mad for sensual pleasure. Couldn't get enough of it kind of thing. And then, of course, you realize when you're working on these things that actually when people convert like that, they don't change who they are. They just convert it. They, they re-channel that energy and the, all those qualities into something else. So he never really changed. He just, he just, he just uh, well, of course he changed, but he used all that energy and converted it into something that was for the common good rather than just for his own selfish uh, pleasure. There's a lot of, um, which a comparison occurred to me, uh, and we've known some of them, actors and writers who um, have been alcoholics or addicts in the past, um, they produce some astonishing work by um, approaching their work as fanatically as they used to approach their addiction. And I think that's quite a common phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That the addictive personality remains, but is channeled into something creative. Yeah, yeah. No, that's absolutely right. That, that uh, the punctilious nature that he always had is possibly, who knows, oh, yeah. but it, possibly OCD, probably, you know, um, certainly some issues going on there around uh, focus, self-discipline, um, attention to detail. Uh, this is the ordinary way that he, he mytholog got the mytholog methodology of the spirituality was actually like a really, a really um, clearly defined spiritual manual 
you know. And he leaves very little um, undiscussed. And apparently, he was when he was a dandy, a bit like Malcolm X in a way. He he everything had to be absolutely just so. The rings had to be absolutely just right. The stitching had to be absolutely right. His hair had to be uh, completely right. The hat had to be tilted at a certain angle. He was obsessed with looking good. Didn't like um, uh, dirt of any kind, which when he started to walk around in sackcloth and not wash was a real mortification for him. That was one of the things he found the hardest of all, um, because he was absolutely punctilious about personal hygiene, about how he looked. And yes, absolutely. So he, he took those uh, aspects and um, and just never giving up, and never, you know, just about okay was never enough for someone like Ignatius. And, and in his orbit, he attracted those kinds of people. That's why when Francisco Javier uh, St. Francis Xavier turns up. Yeah, and it's incredible. They all shared a flat together. They all shared, they were roomies at university at some barb uh, in Paris. Uh, and the other one. You could do a sitcom next time. Yes, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Jesuits, the <laughs> <Yeah>. sitcom. <laughs> yeah. And then you'd have. You know, <laughs> because the three of them, P- uh, Pierre Favre, uh, Francisco Javier, and Inigo de Loyola, were all um, saints. They all. Mm went on to become saints, and they were just three guys sharing a room together at university, a tiny room. Uh, they were poverty-stricken. And uh, Francis Xavier turns up, who also was this rather kind of uh, pleasure-seeking, sensualist, quite shallow in some ways, wanted to make, just wanted to be minted, wanted to make a fortune, wanted to be rich and famous, very much. Implausibly handsome, unlike Ignatius, who was a little quirky-looking little guy, and quite small, actually, quite short, Ignatius. Um, and then in comes this strapping specimen of a sports jock, which was uh, St. Francis Saviour. And he basically warned him. He said, all right, I'll share the flat with you. If you mention anything to do with religion, you're out. <laughs> I don't want to hear anything about it. You know, this is St. Francis Saviour. I'm too busy chasing women. I'm too busy winning gold medallions because I'm the star athlete of the university. You're just minor nobility. I'm the real deal. My family are aristocrats, uh, you know, from, from, from Navarre, and you people are nothing. And so this is how he was. And instead of Ignatius thinking, I can't have anyone around me like this, quite the contrary. He just saw him immediately, I think, as this potential uh, rock star of the Jesuits, which is what he kind of became, really, this kind of pin-up of, of, of the movement, in a way. Um, so, so friendship was very important to them, and and they 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 were a, a certain kind of sensual pleasure channeled into something else seems to be one of the kind of recurring motifs as well. And the last thing we'll talk about before we open it up to the audience is um, where it fits into. This is a huge generalisation, but religious drama, essentially, I think, if you leave. Um, Modern religious drama, there are kind of two poles, I think. One is um, uh, the Book of Mormon, at one end, and um, Hand Hand to God, which opened last night uh, in the West End, which is a puppet play, or play involving puppets, set um, in a Texan evangelical church, and very like Book of Mormon, um, quite savage, satirical comedy. And then the other end, there's... um, uh, a Man Four Seasons, Robert Bolt, with mm. Paul Schofield's extraordinary performance mm. captured on film, yeah. as um, as he became Saint Thomas More, 
Now, you're somewhere in the middle, which is interesting to me, because it's not, um, you don't satirize Ignatius, but nor do you sanctify him. He isn't, um, he very strictly isn't St. Thomas More. Um, you've created deliberately a human, um, a human protagonist. Well, my literary agent was saying, well, look, you know, had this been a hatchet job on Ignatius, you'd get it on at the National or the RSC, that's it. <laughs> Uh, I wasn't prepared to change it. I wasn't going to turn him into this uh, kind of <laughs> person because there's plenty of people who, who have already done that and will continue to do it because that's the nature of who they are. Combative, contrarian, interested in, 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 in that sort of thing. So I think I didn't want to write a hagiography either. I wanted to write a play. My wonderful publisher, Cheryl uh, Robson from Aurora Metro, is in tonight. And... The way I was thinking about it, and I've talked to Mark about this as well, was that it, it, it can function as a kind of political allegory uh, about anybody who takes on an establishment. And um, a lot of my uh, non-faith friends, other faith friends, whatever, ha- have seen it on that uh, level. But it is... It, it, Jeremy it, Corbyn, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it can be seen as somebody who's taken... Well, no, no, but there are. Bernie Sanders. Yeah, well, quite. Um, there are, but there are parallels, aren't there? I mean, are. if you no, there are, there are. Because also, it's purity versus they would say versus corruption. But when you hear Sanders' speeches, where he talks about what has happened in the banks in New York and what has happened in Washington politics, <coughs> that um, I mean, he religiously is Jewish, is different tradition, but that is it's it's like Ignatius. It is, it is very, against. very, it is yeah. very, very like that, and. Um, Yes, it's. Uh, it, 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 uh, I wanted to avoid something that, that, that was too hagiographic, uh, and I certainly wasn't going to do a hatchet job on him because I admired uh, what he stood for. I admired a lot of what he did, uh, and I was very interested that that. I'm sure there were some precedents for this and other th- occurrences of it, but far too few. You know that that women uh, was some uh, w- 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 and women's response to the spirituality was of crucial importance to him because all the major spiritual influences in his life were women. I mean, this came across very clearly in my research. Um, and Isabel Rosaire, a noble woman from Barcelona, uh, was a kind of proto-feminist um, uh, uh, intellectual, actually political activist. Um, and uh, and taught him a lot, and in, and, and uh, you know part of it's that that's my thesis about her, but part of it's based in my research. Was women women were very interested in him and his soul and his spirituality and his ideas, and I, I wanted to tell that because in the first drafts it was like a boy's own story. It was just like boys doing stuff, you know. Mm. You know, it was a great big street fight, and then they do something else, and yeah, let's go and do this. And whoa, I thought this is just blah. What's happening? So I went back to the research books, and I, I, I gradually looked, found this, and saw this, and, and I was determined to to show that aspect of his life. Um, and, and when I saw the play at this tiny little fringe theatre that we did it in initially, it was great because the way the seats are in fringe theatres, you can actually watch the reaction. And it was just wonderful to watch the reaction of women to mm-hmm. the, the speech she has about the intellectual uh, snobbery of the male mm-hmm. clergy and how she felt marginalised and how she felt her voice wasn't being heard and how she felt... And you could just see the people, the women in the audience just actually, yeah, OK, here we go. 
Uh, and I think, unfortunately, that still happens in the church. Well, I was going to say, but it's interesting. Anybody watch Panorama last night? Yeah. yeah. Oh, with Sturton, Ed Sturton. Yeah, but you see, that's um, that story I was thinking of when you were saying it, because um, I didn't see it. it's interesting people's reaction to that, because for those who didn't see it, it um, is based on a correspondence, and unfortunately they only seem to have one side of it, but the um, Pope John Paul II, now Saint John Paul, um, he was writing a book with a female academic in Poland and he met her a few times but they wrote several letters and as they said in the program there is no suggestion that he broke his vow of celibacy at all but he seems to have fallen in at some level fallen in love with this woman and the um the letters are very intense between them but now the reaction of is interesting because the reaction of a lot of the media is that somehow this was hypocritical of him Whereas I think to a lot of Catholics, it, it, it's human. It's, it's human. Yeah, absolutely. It's like when uh, Mother Teresa sort of, uh, oh, yeah. sort of said that she, she anybody who's, who's even slightly familiar with, with the kind of mystic tradition knows that that's very much a part of it. You know, the, the dark night of the soul, the times when you don't even... I mean, even in a the, as we just say, the headline is they found Mother Teresa's spiritual diary, or she'd left it in her will, hadn't she? And then... Um, the headline on one well-known British newspaper was Mother Teresa didn't believe in God. And she was evil. She yeah. was awful yeah. and evil. I can't stand her. Do you remember? Yeah, but in fact, what she'd said was she'd had moments where she didn't um, believe. Which is part of the faith tradition. Mm. And it's what Ignatius of Loyola went through because he was that far away from taking his own life at one point, Ignatius de Loyola. And, um, yeah, so... so um, I, I can't remember what we were saying before then. But uh, well, we were talking about the, the human, the importance of women, but this is why I got into that story about the Pope. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and also religious right, and plays about... See, I don't think this is a religious play as such. I mean, I really don't. And, and I think what I did do, though, was I was very interested in reading those kinds of plays. Um, I read, um, in the build-up to it, just to get myself in training, as it were, I read Man for All Seasons. I read uh, Luther by John Osborne. Oh, yeah. I read, uh, uh, well, Gospel According to St. Matthew, but that's one of my all-time favourite movies by Pasolini. It's, it's just a towering work of genius anyway. But I watched it again. Uh, Son of Man by Dennis Potter. Uh, that play Adrian Mitchell, is it, about St. Francis? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, Julian Mitchell. Julian Mitchell, yeah. that's right. Adrian <laughs> Mitchell, that would yeah. be really Which interesting. Which is called uh, Saint, Saint Saint Francis, Saint Francis, is it? Saint yeah, Frank. yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was Andrew Mitchell. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, I wanted to do that, and also George Bernard Shaw's uh, Saint Joan. Mm. And he says something amazing in the introduction to that. He says, um, <laughs> it's all about Irish Catholic uh, atheists, because they still write like Catholics. It's just kind of incredible. Uh, culturally, it's so imbued with that that kind of uh, awareness of uh, semiotics and the power of symbolism, and they keep that in their writing, if it, even if it's to kind of completely demolish uh, those traditions. Kind of interesting. But anyway, he says in this very long, typically Shavian introduction, he says something like, there's something about the truly evolved soul that frightens people, that people get very nervous <coughs> around. You'd think people would be thinking, wow, what a beautiful human being. I can learn from this person, but no. It's kind of quite... It, it puts people's backs up, and that's what the original Jesuits did as well. And he talks about... Um, but, you see, for an atheist writer um, to show such sensitivity to to the numinous and to and to the, the spiritual tradition that he, he personally didn't share in a Shakespearean sense, although Shaw wouldn't thank me for saying that because I didn't like Shakespeare, but... Yeah. Um, 
he was able to to inhabit a completely contraposition to his own and explore it. Um, so I read all those things. As uh, Gerald Manley Hopkins says, you read works, uh, great works to admire and then do otherwise. Because uh, I didn't want it to sound like anything else or be like anything else, as one hopes you know, one's work is. Uh, so uh, that was certainly though. But also for the linguistic kind of landscape and territory, I went to The Crucible. Uh, by Arthur Miller, because there's a there's a way that he writes that play, which is you're 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 at once very aware of the historicity of the writing, but you're also very aware that it's um, alive and fresh and feels contemporary, and just one wrong word can unbalance that. It's like I love Dickensian, by the way, it's great, but there are some things like um, uh, yeah about that. In the war on uh, war and peace, there's war a moment peace. where she <laughs> says, um, uh, "Oh, so the thing is." Yeah, you see, that's it. That's oh, what I mean. Yeah. So, so what I was trying to do was to yes, give it a sense of it being contemporary, but actually, uh, obviously, quite hopefully, very accurately uh, researched uh, historically. Um, but to also give a linguistic world where you felt, yes, this is different, but at the same time it's something that I can really, I can really connect with and I can really understand uh, without it being overly full of bathos or kind of deliberately trying to kind of like, you know, let's make it completely contemporary, which would be equally wrong, I think, in that way. Okay, well, we've, um, we've talked, so um, we'll now open it up to anyone who would like to... Oh, they're going. They've had enough. Look. <laughs> um, anyone who would like to say, uh, yes, sir. Oh, we've got a microphone. Yeah. How would Inigo be spending his time if he were alive today? He'd probably be watching the Chelsea PSG match, <laughs> which kicks off at 7.45. And um, praying for and Chelsea. Praying for Ch- well, he'd actually be an Atletico Bilbao supporter, because that's the nearest one to Loyola. But you mean right physically? You, you mean generally? Yeah, would he have gone into the church? Interesting question. That's a very interesting question because I think had he had his own way, he, he would just be living in maybe like a hermit's cave somewhere and, and meditating and using spiritual exercises of the desert fathers going back to the 4th or 3rd century. He was essentially a mystic. This is what people don't realise about Ignatius. They rightly understand that you know, they, they called themselves contemplatives in action. That's what they still call themselves, the Jays, because it's to do with... They are of a monastic tradition, but they really believe you've got to get out there and start changing society and, and making things uh, politically a bit more egalitarian. And, of course, that's why they've had so much opposition over this. So he'd either be that, or he'd maybe be a trade union um, convener somewhere, or a political activist or something like that. I don't know, but it's a great question. Yeah. Uh, few, quite a few American senators were taught by Jesuits. I mean, they go into that political... That tradition. was their idea. Yeah. They used to do this thing called... The, it was basically a kind of spiritual trickle-down theory. They thought what they'd do traditionally, they used to, as we know, they used to run all these posh schools everywhere and they'd educate kids of the ruling class, you know, and, and they thought... And they always did that from the very get-go. That's something that's mm. very... Um, because they wanted to change society that way. They thought if you can convert the president, you saved a lot of time. You know, <laughs> just just do that. Go to the go to the nearest palace and say, you know. And I suppose that's where the whole kind of the years of kings thing came from. Mm. You know? Because they did have the years of kings, but then around about the 1960s, when there was a kind of political and theological sea change or coming off the 
of a, a certain kind of li- liberation theology idea uh, was the, the Jesuits were very much in the forefront of that. And a wonderful guy called Pedro Arupe, Father Pedro Arupe, who ran the Jesuits, and he was a Basque at that time. And he said, listen, you know what? We've got to pull out of these post schools, man. We've got to... We can't do this anymore. And he wrote this wonderful essay called The Option for the Poor, which the Jesuits very much took on. And, and, and uh, they still keep some of these schools. I think the one in Lima is still going. I think Stonyhurst is still just about going. Um, no, and there's one... Um, in but, fact, they've, changed. They, yeah. they've changed the emphasis to make it more of a grassroots mm. movement rather than... Uh, you know, you know, the education of the, of, the, of the elites in that way, I think. And I think the Bronx, uh, it was, but um, the uh, Supreme Court Justice, Antonin Scalia, who, Antonin Scalia, oh. who died a week, and he was educated by Jesuits who spotted his mind, and even in his, le- in his legal judgments, you see a great mind of work, but he ended up politically on the, quite unusually, on the uh, really quite far right. That is weird. The G- George Monbiot, uh, who writes for The Guardian and who's a kind of write, writing on... It's not eco-warrior would be to do, you know, but, but he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a wonderful writer for The Guardian. You know, like, and he turned up and thought, John, George Monbiot meets a Jesuit priest and thought, oh, God, here we go. You know, it's going to be, they're bastards, they're all evil, we hate <laughs> them. Um, and uh, I read this thing and he said, the very first sentence was, the bravest people I've ever met are Jesuit priests. I thought, okay... All right, why is that? Because he went to somewhere in, I think it was um, somewhere in uh, Peru or somewhere like this, somewhere in South America, and he went to this little shack where these blokes were living, and the door opened, and, he's, and, and this guy was really cold, this Jesuit was really cold towards him, and so I said, well, you got to come in then, sit down, okay, what do you want to talk to me about? And then gradually the whiskey came out, and gradually they started putting on music and, you know, and hanging out and having fun together, you know? He said, listen, I've got to be honest, you were really kind of cold and a bit unfriendly, actually, when I turned up. What was that all about? He said, oh, I thought you were going to shoot me. Mm. Mm. I thought, that's what I thought was going to And many have been, yeah. That's what you yeah. were saying earlier on, and seven of them were wiped out by a right-wing death squad in El Salvador for organising literary reform, agrarian reform, women's rights, clean water programme, the education, educa- uh, affordable, free a university education, uh, organising trade unions, things like this. And they were warned repeatedly by the, the oligarchy, by the, the Arena Party, I think it was. Um, and then one of them went on TV uh, with the head of this Arena Party. It was called Eya Gurria. Some of you may have heard of him. A great, a great intellectual, a great thinker, and a mad Atletico Bilbao mm. fan. They always used to watch football together. You know, they'd never miss a match from Spain kind of thing. Most of them were bastards. Anyway, so there he is, looking like a film star, looking like Alain Delon or something. This amazing suit, you know. Wonderful kind of tie. They very rarely wear dog collars, Jesuits, on the whole, because they, they don't want to be... They want to sort of blend in. They want to, you know? Uh, it's kind of interesting. So anyway, there he was, and he intellectually demolishes this guy from the arena party, you know. I mean, it just, just my Spanish is pretty crappy, but I could understand that much. And um, and pretty soon, you could see this guy from the arena party just really thinking, okay, okay, let's just let's just see how far you get with this. And very soon after that, they were all wiped out. They were all murdered by the army, by a right wing army uh, group. And their housekeeper and her daughter was murdered as well. 
And I was going to write a play about it, actually, way back. And I met Michael Campbell Johnson, Father Michael Campbell Johnson, who's a Jesuit. And uh, he knew them all personally. And he showed me the police photographs. Um, and they'd, they'd scooped out their brains and they'd smeared them. It's faux South American, that's the symbolism of it. And smeared their brains on the garden outside where they lived. Because they'd warned them. They said, look, you carry on doing this, we will kill you. You know, it was just a matter of time, but they carried on. So that just, that was like cutting the tongue out of an informer. It was, it was saying that saying their brains, brains yeah. were what has yeah. got you killed. And warning other academics and intellectuals and, uh, in, in El Salvador and South America generally that that's what's going to happen to you. Uh, for me, I, I, if they'd said something like that, I'd have said, okay, I'm packing my bags, I'm getting out of here, this is just ridiculous. I, it's very hard to, to come across that kind of bravery, but that's why I said when you mentioned the bravery thing earlier on, and in the play I've got, I've got a, a little nod to that, actually. It did happen, but there's a scene where he's beaten up by, he's warned by uh, an aristocrat who's sent as an emissary because he was reforming um, a monastery, uh, uh, like you know, like a convent actually for nuns, and they'd even got hold of that. You know, these aristocratic guys were going around and effectively using it as a brothel, and even then they couldn't escape. It's one of the weird sort of dints of fate and historical irony is that convents and monasteries were at least one place where women could get an education, could live the way they wanted to live. It wasn't predicated on you know, their relationship to a man, uh, this kind of thing. So anyway, this guy came along and said, unless you stop this reforming work and you allow us to go in and, and use these women as we please when we want to, you know, there's a gentleman's agreement, you know, why can't you carry on this agreement? And he just says, no, no, you're going to have to kill me. You don't just stop there. You will have to kill me if you want to stop me. And he, and he got beaten within an inch of his life and repeatedly beaten on the street and almost died kind of miraculous that he didn't get killed, really. I personally find that kind of bravery really, really inspirational. I think for people, who, any, any radical, anyone trying to change things, it seems, has to pay that kind of price. Any other, um, anybody like to? Yes, So, I, last year I saw the play, and congratulations, I think it Thank really... You. Uh, develops um, yeah, the Ignatian biography in a contemporary language, and I Thank was you. really very happy to to see and to listen to it. Um, so it was, I think, performed twice in London in two different periods in two different theatres. Yeah. Uh, for example, what about the future of its performance in theatres or in Jesuit colleges? Have you received proposals? Uh, what is the future of the play? Well, I... I, I, I I've got this really amazing uh, and <laughs> incredible uh, assistant, uh, PA type guy. He works with me maybe like a couple of afternoons a week because I can't afford any more than that. Um, but he wrote to 500 universities and colleges in America about the play with the reviews, with lovely photographs and from all that. Um, we got three replies. Uh, uh, we, uh, I think the way to go with it, although I would love that, but having said that, the English Jesuits um, have been very good, and it's in Jesuit schools. Father Adrian Porter has taken it, and 
is using it, even though there's words like bastard in it. It's painting, really. Uh, what they'll let children contaminate their brains with these days. Um, also, we say we, we know we can't name the person, I don't think, but um, somebody tried to take a copy of the play to the Pope. Well, they did take a copy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and someone else did as well, and, 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 the, and the general of uh, the Jesuits has got it in his... Um, he only actually read the introduction of the play, but anyway, it's, um, it's, it's something. Yeah. No, no, we don't know if, he, if it got to him, do we? Uh, well, it got to the general oh. of, the, of the order. Right, in, uh, yeah. of the, uh, And um, so, but the Spanish Jesuits have really gone for it in a big way, and the Latin American Jesuits have really gone for it, and they've been clamouring for translation... Um, and my publisher's been negotiating that, and we've been talking to them. It looks like, yeah, so basically, uh, it looks like, you know, inshallah, there's going to be a Spanish translation of the play. So for this country, but also in all Spanish-speaking countries around the world. So that was interesting. Now I've met with almost complete coldness from the American Jesuits. They couldn't show any less interest if they tried apart from a wonderful one called James Martin, yeah. Jim Martin, who's just lovely. And he's the editor-at-large of America magazine and, and, and a wonderful author in his own right. I met him in New York recently. Also talking to a famous Irish actor who lives in New York at the moment about maybe playing Ignatius, but he's, he's got a very complex relationship with the Catholic Church, which is hardly unusual, is it, if um, <laughs> anyone brought up in the tradition? Um, so he's... Um, he, he liked it, again, he, he wouldn't describe himself by any means as a practicing Catholic, but he, he, he connected to it as a piece of drama and, and that he was fascinated. He didn't know that Ignatius was so charismatic and interesting. He just thought he was this kind of really dour control freak, which was really, the dour control freak came in when he was drafting up the constitutions. This is what kind of hippies they were. They said, he, he said... I, I, we'll have no rules and regulations for this order. First of all, he didn't want an order. It took them years to persuade him. The others were much more into it than he was. And they'd have endless uh, discernment exercises because the big thing of Jesuit spirituality is, is how to make a good decision. It gives you those techniques. Um, so in the end, he regretfully sort of said, all right, looks like that's what we should be doing. We'll, we'll found an order. But there will be no rules and regulations just the inner law of divine love. This is so wonderful. But of course, even he began to realise, you know, that, okay, I suppose we've got to have some, you know, structure here. Cal Dimage, you know. So, so that's when they draw them up. So to answer your question, the Span Spanish Jays have come through and they've been fantastic. It's in the, uh, the schools at a limited uh, extent over here. My wonderful drama teacher from when I was a kid uh, is here tonight. I won't look at her because she'll get all embarrassed. <laughs> Mary, who who has a connection with the uh, the mission in Harare, so it's been so ten books have been sent out there, and they're using it on the mission there in Harare, which is kind of lovely. And um, it's going to be performed at uh, Gonzago College in Dublin, the Irish uh, college, and the Irish Jays are quite interested. The Australian Jesuits are making really good good sounds about oh, it good. as well, which is great. Oh. Um, and this copy we sent to the Pope, he might do a reading from the balcony at Easter, mm -hmm. we're, hope, we're hoping. Yeah, and you can play Isabel Roser. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so that would be, that, that, that's, but I'm hoping for much more. I mean, in my naivety, I just kind of thought that every other university in America is called Loyola. There might be a smidgen of interest. Mm. 
It was someone from Detroit sort of saying, we might do it. Not sure. Send a copy. Yeah. We'll see. You may not like it. <laughs> so, um, but anyway. So it, it's, it's an interesting question, and it's kind of, it's a bit frustrating that we, that we can't really open it up to more colleges, because the wonderful, legendary James Hanby, SJ, Father James Hanby, who's now a Master of Campion College, Oxford, uh, was mad about the play and wrote us a wonderful rave review in thinkingfaith.org, and he said that this would be a wonderful uh, resource for not just schools, but for, for, for spirituality centres and, and retreat houses and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so funny that I've written a play like this. I never thought I, never <laughs> thought I would actually do a, a play like this, but I'm really glad I have, actually. Um, I have one more question, but anyone, please do, and then I'll ask, otherwise I'll ask my last one. You don't have to. I don't want anyone to go home sad, feeling they wanted to ask a question. Um, again, yes, please do. You look a bit like Ignatius, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you look like a young Jesuit. <laughs> Sorry, were you as well? Or? No. Yeah. Um, first one is, how would you know if you met Inigo, um, that he, uh, a modern-day Inigo who was Inigo? It's you. Yeah, no, it's you. <laughs> and uh, what have you, how has your life changed as, as a result of the kind of Learnings and wisdom that you've kind of picked up through the whole research, and then now meeting Jesuits and going around the world trying to spread it. I think what he what he would say to you is like, uh, "I want your A game." That's the first thing he'd say. He'd say, "Step up, all right? I want I want you to be the best that you are. You've got to do that. You've got to." And he, a friend of mine's a great rock drummer called Stuart Copeland. He used to play with the Police and all this kind of stuff, and he's a great great drummer. And he said something which I also thought... Uh, he's one of the geniuses I mentioned earlier on, by the way. He fe- I mean, very similar in many, many ways. And he said a story that he, he, he did this thing at the Hollywood Bowl with the L.A. Phil, right? And he was asked to come along and play the kit part, you know. And he was playing so loudly that I had to put him behind banks of perspex screens <laughs> so he wouldn't drown out the entire orchestra. So the conductor said to him, listen, would you please just play a little bit more quietly... I'm not asking you to, but just if you wouldn't mind. So, yeah, sure, great, okay, fine. And, of course, when he saw the audience in there, he just kind of went mad. (laughs) Typical drummer. He just went mad and started obliterating sonically everything in his path. And so at the end, the conductor came up to him and sort of said, "Um, you know, the whole sort of not playing so loud thing. Uh, Do you remember that? Do you have that conversation? He said, man, what can I say? I don't do half-assed. Right? I don't do half-assed. And for me, that's the Jesuits. That's Ignatius, particularly. You know, what's the point of mm. half doing something? What's the point of doing something a little bit? Really, really go for it, is what he would say. But also, for me, it's really helped my meditation uh, practice. And I do use Ignatian techniques for my meditation. And, because they're so, they're so connected to other forms of meditation I had been doing before then. I was very interested in Tibetan Buddhism in terms of uh, meditation techniques, but um, I found that it was all there anyway, in my own tradition, right under my nose kind of thing. Um, And I think maybe we are born into certain cultural milieus for a reason. Who knows? Maybe we're not. Maybe it's just an accident. I don't know. I suspect not, though. Um, And therefore, if if there's a reason for you to be... uh, It's like when T.S. Eliot became a Catholic. He had been interested in Buddhism, and then he suddenly thought, well, I'm a Western... 
what's the most readily available for me anyway in terms of my background and who I am? What's more congruent for what, I, for what, I, what I'm looking for? And, and he thought it was Catholicism, Anglo-Catholicism. Um, so so I, I would think he'd be quite demanding and he'd be like a Basque, you know, because I did this long meditation walk from Loyola to Manresa, about 400 miles. God knows, it nearly killed me. But anyway, did this long, long walk and when you meet the Basques, they're... When you first meet them, they're kind of the most unfriendly people. I mean, almost unimaginably unfriendly when you first meet them. Just literally like that. And then very, very soon, they then become the most friendly people, the warmest people. They're like the Irish or something that you've ever met in your life, you know. And I think he would be like that. And he is like that when you start walking that Ignatian path. Because he very doesn't really show himself to you that much in the way that Francis, Francis Xavier does who's this kind of touchy-feely star kind of thing um, but he, 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 it does pay off in the end and I think once he was your friend he would be absolutely loyal and completely on your side and totally reliable you know not the mo- he wouldn't be very tactile he wasn't a very tactile person and not the most emotionally demonstrative of people either but you'd always know that he'd have your back, you know, I think. And actually meeting them has been quite, quite inspirational because it's made me think that you don't have to be an uptight, holy Joe to be a, a really, really uh, spiritual, or at least attempting to live your life in a kind of aware uh, way, you know. And the last question I was going to ask, which is quite, quite a big question, but we'll just do a little bit of it, is that it's always interests me. You're going to borrow me a googly now. Is that no, well, possibly. Yeah, the last ball of the game. No, writing, um, <laughs> writing and acting, it's always, because we talk about mysticism, and you have to be careful about this, because, but there is, I think, in writing and acting, uh, music, I mean, any kind of creativity, there is a mystical element that you have to go somewhere else. I mean, if you watch a great actor or read a great writer, something else has happened that is, is beyond them, I think. I mean, there has to be some kind of mystical element. Definitely, and I think that um, you see any great musician or any great rock guitarist or any great footballer, actually, they, they get into a kind of zone which, which, which is absolutely in the moment. Ignatius said this incredible thing about uh, one mindful act is worth a thousand done half-heartedly. It's an extraordinary idea that if you're absolutely in the moment, it's that Blakeian thing, he who binds himself to a joy, doth the winged thing destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. And I think it's that thing of that, that paradox of a, an idea of eternity actually being to do with the now, mm. very much the now. And I think sometimes when I was writing this play, um, there's a wonderful actor writer called Jack Shepard, you may be aware of, he's a wonderful. And he said to me, he said, listen, when you're researching historical play, because he writes a lot of historical plays, researching a historical play, just do the research and then don't refer to the research while you're writing it. Because I would be a bit like, oh God, when was that? 1643. Although I did have the dates right in front of me, so I could be sure. But just get rid of, get rid of all that stuff and, and, and forge within the smithy of your soul kind of thing. You know, what you want what, what, what's going to come up, and in some strange process of osmosis or something, what's right to come up in that scene will come up, and you can draw on it. But there were times when it was just like dictation. Mm. I, I wrote something like four hours. Yes, it was that long, the original draft. <laughs> 
And somebody <laughs> said to me, I think it might be a bit of a big ask. <laughs> and so I, I'd meditate before writing it. And then it was eight hours every day without, mm. I mean, pretty much non-stop. And it was trying to keep up, right? The characters were writing themselves. That's it. They just were. And in very individuated voices as well. Which to a normal, healthy, rational person sounds completely insane. And it probably is. Um, but I could hear, I wasn't even thinking what they might say. It was just literally trying to keep up. And they, mm. and they were just talking away like mad and... Ignatius had his own way of speaking, Francisco had his own way of speaking, Fabre, Bobadilla comes in like a kind of uh, force of nature. And, um, yeah, so I got into a kind, of, a kind of place of, not exactly trance, but certainly meditation, a meditative, contemplative state to write the whole play. Now, I think it's interesting, and when people say, because when writers and actors say it, some people think it's pretentious, but sport is interesting to me. It's not if you're not interested in sport, obviously, but... Um, Stuart Broad, if I say the word Stuart Broad, um, England bowler, every so often about... Is he really? England yeah, bowler? Once, once or twice a year, sportsmen talk about getting into the zone. Yeah. And once or twice a year, Stuart Broad will just go through an entire team, just take, he's unplayable mm. for mm. about an hour, mm. an hour and 20 minutes. That golden section. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, but these, they're, they're linked to me in the moment. I mean, actors are told to be in the moment, always on stage. Yeah. I mean, a, a good actor should not know what happens next in the play or no. what's happened before that exactly. in that moment. In meditation, you have it, and in sport, in the zone, and, yeah. and in writing. These are real things, I think. These are very real yeah. things, and I think you, you as a writer know that. And it's that, that they're the one. Listen, as professional writers, you sometimes you're not going to sit that That's, un, you know, a lot of the times, it can be like chopping wood writing a play. It's just a nightmare sometimes. But this was one of those rare, wonderful occasions where it was felt like it was just coming through me onto the page. It was just not even a... Having said that, there was a, 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 I approached it, which again is quite Ignatian. Once you get to know Jesuits, this is probably how they would do it. And I wasn't really aware of that. But it was just that thing of being very, very practical, very, very professional, very kind of collating all the information. That's that period, that's that period. Okay, how can we make a linear narrative out of this apart from the obvious one? What can we do here? How can we in introduce that there? Whatever, just very hard-nosed about it, as one has to be. So I, I got a clearly defined parameter. But then within that, you can dream and you can, and you can just let it come come through you and I think that's that that's kind of that's kind of what I did there was one amazing thing that I couldn't get in for some reason I couldn't find a way of doing it and I was researching these uh, as I say almost Python-esque uh, austerity that these early Jays put themselves through it, it, it's the, the intellectual SAS is probably part of that it was so rigorous as to be almost funny I mean the things that they put themselves through the privations and that this one sweet little moment where he's he he's he's just dropping with hunger and all the rest of it, and he and he and in his diary, this little diary, the spiritual diary he wrote, he said, and then at the end of fasting, blah blah, blah uh, looking after lepers, blah, 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 I treated myself three chestnuts, <laughs> which is a delicacy in the Basque region, roasted chestnuts, and it, I, I I found myself just weeping. I, the tears were coming down onto the page. Uh, I wasn't even in a kind of... I was just very, very... Okay, okay, what details, what about that? Uh-huh, okay, uh, three chestnuts. And, uh, and I just... It was just... I was just weeping. Uh, because I, I just kind of felt... Uh, this is a treat. Three chestnuts, you know. 
This is him really pushing the boat out, you know. I was thinking, I, 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 I very, it just moved me to the mm. core of my being, and I couldn't. It wasn't a, a cerebral mm. process at all. It was just, it was just this. I, I hadn't really sort of unpacked it probably even now, but it maybe humility, a, a certain kind of childlike delight with simple stuff. You know, I, I don't know. It was very, very moving. Well, thank you very much. Um, a wide-ranging conversation from St. Ignatius of Loyola to Stuart Board's 8 for 14 against <laughs> Australia, um, and, uh, which are linked, as we've discussed. So thank you very much to uh, Jonathan Moore, who will be signing copies of Inigo, and um, thank you very much to all of you. Thank you. <laughs>